Well, let's open the Bible together, shall we? And uh, let's allow God, through his word, by his spirit, to speak to us. And uh, we're in December, and so it's a good time to begin to reflect on the story of Christmas, the story of Christ coming into the world. And one of the verses that we hear over and over again, especially at this time of year, is from Isaiah chapter 9. You all know this. You don't really need to turn to it. You should all know this off by heart. Even those of us who haven't been around church as long as others will know this verse. It says, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. It's the story of Christmas, light shining in the darkness, God coming to earth to rescue us from the darkness that held us captive. It's a verse that's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. And I want us just to reflect on this verse together this morning for a few moments. And there's something really important that we need to understand and learn about Isaiah 9. I'm going to bring you into my theological training for a minute, if that's all right. I went to Bible school for three years and studied the Bible. And one of the things that I learned that was so mind-blowing and profound for me, I want to pass on to you this morning. Is that okay? Are you ready to have your minds expanded this morning with the glory of the Scriptures? Isaiah 9, here we go. There's something you need to know about Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 comes right after... Isaiah 8. Yeah? Mind blown this morning. I spent 25 grand at Bible school learning gold like that, right? Isaiah 9 comes after Isaiah 8. It's a bit of a joke this morning, but it's an important point, actually. Because what we need to understand about these words, which are so familiar to us at this time of year, we need to understand that these words didn't originate on a Christmas card. Right? These words were not first delivered to us in the form of a Christmas carol. Right? These words were spoken by the prophet Isaiah... And they were spoken to a particular people at a particular time in a particular place. These words did not just drop out of heaven and land on a Christmas card. They were spoken to a people at a time and in a place. And I think for us this morning... To get a deeper and a more glorious picture of what these words are telling us, I think it's important that we try to put ourselves, or at least learn a little bit, about the people, the time, and the place to whom these words were first delivered. Because these words came to the people of God at a time in their history That was an unsettled time. And it was a time when uh, the people of God, the people that God had appointed and chosen and put his blessing upon and 
appointed them to share his blessing with the rest of the world. It was a time when they had begun to compromise their devotion to the God who had saved them. And this is why it's important that we understand that Isaiah 8 comes before Isaiah 9 because on Isaiah 8, we get a little bit of the backdrop to the story. And we discover that at this time in their history, God's people had begun to take their eyes, their minds, and most importantly, their hearts off of God. And they'd begun to turn their minds, eyes, and hearts towards other things, lesser things. And so God comes along and he begins to speak into this situation through the prophet Isaiah. One of the ways that Isaiah describes this spiritual compromise, we can read in Isaiah 8, chapter, uh, verse 5. This is the way Isaiah described the spiritual compromise that the people of God found themselves in at the time. The Lord spoke to me again, and he said, My care for the people of Judah, that's God's people, is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. My care for the people is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. At the time, there was a stream that flowed into Jerusalem, the heart of God's nation. And this stream was called the Waters of Shiloh. Now, streams were deeply significant back in those days, much more significant than they are today. See, for us, a stream is just a nice bit of scenery, right? A nice place to have a pleasant walk alongside a stream. But in ancient days, when you didn't have taps in your kitchen, you know, streams were not just nice bits of scenery. They were the source of life. Water. You don't have water, you don't survive. And wherever there was a stream, it was a symbol of life, of provision, of sustenance. And that's what this stream was for God's people. Shiloh, the waters of Shiloh. Shiloh means scent. And so this particular stream that flowed into Jerusalem and provided water for the inhabitants of the nation, it was a stream that provided life for them and it was symbolic. It was deeply symbolic. It means sent. And so this stream was sent from God. It was a picture of the goodness of God being given to his people. And every day when they went down to the river to gather some water, their hearts should have been turned with gratitude and praise and thankfulness to the God who had sent them this water to provide life and sustenance for them. They were symbolic, these waters. And God says to his people in, in Isaiah 8 here, he says, My care for the people is like... These flowing waters of Shiloh, but but they have rejected it. But they have chosen to reject it. This water that was symbolic of God's kindness, of God's goodness, of God's generosity, of God's love and his care for his people was rejected by the people. And that's the situation that God's people were in, 
in Isaiah chapter 8. They were a people who had taken their hearts and minds and eyes off of the God who loved them and cared for them and began to turn their worship and their devotion elsewhere. They had rejected the kindness of God. And it's a tragic story. And it's foolish that the people would do such a thing. But here's the thing, is that this is the story, the recurring story, the recurring pattern of God's people, not just here in Isaiah chapter 8, but throughout the whole of the history of the Old Testament. The pattern was the same. God showered his love and his kindness and his care upon his people, but more often than not, they chose to reject it and turn somewhere else. I think perhaps one of the most vivid descriptions and pictures of this tendency for God's people to reject him is found in Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 2. Similar sort of situation. God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a different time in history, but a very similar situation. In Isaiah 8, God says, you've rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Here in Jeremiah 2, he says, my people have forsaken the the fountain of living waters. Waters, different time, similar situation. This is such a vivid picture, I think, of the tragedy of what happens when people choose to reject the goodness of God. It's like they're rejecting a fountain in favor of a broken cistern. Imagine with me for a minute, will you, if you are thirsty, gasping for water. We all know what it's like to be thirsty, right? Gasping for water and you need a drink. God says, you can come and you can drink from the fountain of living waters. Can you flick the next slide on for me, please, Nigel? Imagine if you're thirsty. That would look quite appealing, wouldn't it? A fountain. A fountain of living waters, God says. That's what I am. I'm a fountain of living waters. And I'm here, available for you to come and drink whenever you need. I can provide for your deepest needs. I can satisfy your deepest desires. I'm a fountain of living waters, an ever-giving fountain of living waters, God says, and you can come and you can drink. That's what Jesus says, isn't it, in the New Testament. Anyone's thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. That's what God is. He's an ever-giving, ever-flowing river of life. And goodness and joy and delight. He's a fountain of living waters. And God says, my people have rejected the fountain and instead have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Can you put the next slide on for me? It's a broken cistern. A half-full cistern with Moldy, stagnant, diseased water. And God says, my people would rather drink from this than the fountain. 
It's a vivid image, isn't it, of the foolishness of rejecting God. If the pictures don't quite do it for you, let me try and help you some more. My people, imagine if you're thirsty, friends. Imagine if you're thirsty, really, really thirsty, gasping for some drink, and I come to you and I offer you two different types of drink. You're thirsty? You need your first quench this morning? What are you going to go for, David? <laughs> you're not supposed to think about it. Yeah, you're not supposed to think about it. You've ruined the sermon now. It's supposed to be. It's not. Oh, it's not Coke. Do you want a, do you want a closer look? Yeah, yeah. 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 Worms and dirt and soil in it. You're thirsty. You want to drink. What, what, what are you going to drink? Are you going to drink some nice, clean, refreshing water? Or are you going to go and drink this dirty, moldy, diseased, bacteria-filled water. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer, right? It's an absolute no-brainer. But God says, this is what my people do all the time. Whenever they reject me, whenever they turn their back on me, they're not just disobeying my word, they're choosing this over this. You see, sin is not just an offense to God. It's an absolute foolish decision that people make when they choose to sin. It's like choosing this over this. Did you know that's what we do, friends? It's what we do. Whenever we choose to disobey God's word to us, whenever we choose to turn our hearts away from him in favor of something else, whenever we willfully and deliberately choose to do something or feel something or engage with something that we know doesn't honor him and goes against his will, that's what we're doing. We're choosing this over this. You see, at the heart of sin, at the heart of rebellion, it's it's pride and it's arrogance, but what we're essentially doing when we choose this over this, when we choose something else over God, is we're saying, God, we, we don't trust you to satisfy our deepest desires. We don't actually think there's enough in you to satisfy my deepest desires. That's what sin is at its heart. It's a mistrust that God can satisfy all of our deepest desires. Think back, would you, with me to the very first rebellion in the garden. You, you all know the story. Of course you do. The story that's told to us on the first few pages of the Bible. Adam and Eve are in the garden and God gives them this glorious garden filled with fruit and vegetation and beauty. And God says to the first humans, he says, go on, enjoy it. I've given this all to you. Enjoy it. Fill your boots. And we're told in Genesis chapter 2 that in the middle of the garden, there was two trees. Right? We often focus on the one, but there was two trees in the middle of the garden. We're told in Genesis 2 verse 9 that there were two trees in the garden. There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And God says to the first humans, he says, enjoy yourself, enjoy this garden, but just one thing I don't want you to do. Just one thing. 
I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. If you do that, it's going to lead to death. One prohibition that God gave to our first humans. Interestingly, God never prohibited them from eating from the tree of life. As far as we can tell in the text, they were free to eat from that tree. And so picture the scene with me, will you? You've got two trees side by side. One that leads to life and blessing and joy and delight. And one that God says is going to lead to death. One tree that will satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. And one tree that's going to leave you sick and malnourished and eventually lead to death. What are you going to choose? And our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, foolishly, tragically, they chose the tree that leads to death. Why? Because they didn't trust that in God there was enough to satisfy their deepest longings. A tragic story, a foolish story. But friends, we're, we're all partakers of that story. And we all do this all the time. Whenever we choose to sin, we're choosing this over this. We're choosing gloom over delight. We're choosing death over life. We're choosing darkness over light. That's what we do, and it's tragic, and it's foolish. And that's what God's people were doing In Isaiah chapter 8, they were rejecting the goodness of God, the gently flowing streams of Shiloh, and they were choosing something else. And it led the same way that the choice in the very beginning led. If we go to the end of chapter 8, we're going to see where this rejection of God's gently flowing waters led. This is where it led. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Do you see the trajectory of Isaiah chapter 8? At the beginning, God says, you've rejected me. You've rejected the living waters of Shiloh. And by the end of chapter 8, it says, all there is left for you now is gloom and distress and utter darkness forever. You see, that's the only place we're led to when we choose to reject the goodness of God, friends. It might be a harsh truth, but it is the truth. When we reject the goodness of God, the place where it leads and the place where it ends up is always darkness and death because God is the source of life and light. And so if we would choose to reject the source of life and light, there's only one outcome for us. It's darkness and death, right? And that's the story of the Bible. And that's what God was trying to make clear to the people of Israel here in Isaiah chapter 8. It says, you've, you've rejected the living waters of Shiloh and you find yourself now in distress and darkness. That's what happens when we reject God. When we reject the source of life and light is we find ourselves in death and darkness. And that's what God's people had done in Isaiah chapter 8. And friends, that is our story as well. It's our story. All of us have or were, have at one time rejected the goodness of God. 
All of us at one time were living in rebellion against him and it left us in the same place that it left the people of God in Isaiah 8. It left us in darkness and death and gloom and despair and we were stuck there. Trapped. Held captive. No way out. That's where the people of God were at the end of Isaiah 8. Stuck in despair and darkness and fearful gloom. No way out, no hope, no release, nothing. But, after Isaiah 8 comes Isaiah 9. And this is how Isaiah 9 opens up. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. That's good news. The end of chapter 8, despair, distress, fearful gloom, darkness. The beginning of chapter 9, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In other words, God comes along through the prophet Isaiah and says, yes, you're stuck in despair and darkness and distress right now, but God says, it won't always be that way. Hope. It won't always be that way. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And if you're reading this or hearing these words for the first time, you begin to think, well, how? How is it that the people who were stuck in darkness and despair, how is it that they can find themselves set free from that gloom and that distress? What is it that they have to do to get set free? Do they have to work really hard? Do they suddenly come to their senses? Do they suddenly realize that what they've been doing is wrong and they manage somehow to climb themselves out of this despair and this darkness? How are they going to get out of this despair? How is it that there will be no more gloom or distress for those that were stuck in darkness? That's the kind of questions you'd be asking yourself when you read this for the first time. And God goes on through the prophet Isaiah to explain, for those who were in distress, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone. There will be no more gloom, God says, for those that will live in, in distress. Why? Because a light has shone upon them. This is powerful. This is the message of Christmas. This is the good news. In a nutshell, the people of God were stuck in despair and darkness, held captive by gloom and fearful misery, and they could not climb themselves out of that. They could not break free from it. They could not work their way out or dig themselves out of that darkness. No, no, no. They needed someone or something else to come and rescue them from that darkness. And that's what God said says he will do he says no 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 a light is going to shine in other words a light has come from somewhere else and shined into our darkness and set us free they didn't save themselves they didn't rescue themselves from darkness no 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 a light began to shine up on them and it's a powerful 
story. And it is the story that the Bible delivers to us of the way God has dealt with his people who continually reject, who continually turn away, who continually harden their hearts, who continually choose death over life. And because of that, find themselves stuck in darkness. God comes, he says, you can't get yourselves out of that darkness, but I'm going to shine a light into that darkness. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of Christmas. That's your story and that's my story. All of us, all of us, friends, whether you like to believe this or not, all of us have chosen death over life. All of us have. All of us have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. All of us have rejected the fountain of living waters and we've drunk from broken cisterns that can't hold water. All of us have chosen death over life and because of that we're stuck. Nevertheless, God says, there will be no more gloom for those who were in darkness. Why? Because a light has shone. God has shone his light into the darkness. God shone his light into the darkness. He shone his light into the darkness of the people of Judah 3,000 years ago. He shone his light into the darkness of our hearts. And now we're set free from that darkness. And he did it by sending Jesus. 2,000 years ago, the light that Isaiah spoke about arrived. The light that Isaiah declared began to shine. His name was Jesus. His name was Jesus. And at one point in his life, Jesus stood up before the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He has shone into our darkness and rescued us from the death that we had chosen. That's the story of Christmas. That's the good news. You know, a couple of years ago, when we were in the middle of that crazy lockdown season, I remember, I think it was the first Christmas of the COVID pandemic. I think, weren't we, we were in lockdown, weren't we, over Christmas? I think, I can't really remember. It's all a bit of a haze, isn't it? Um, but there was a lot of angst, wasn't there? coming up to Christmas about whether people would be allowed to celebrate Christmas in the way that they wanted to because everyone wants to get out spend time with family at Christmas and because of COVID and lockdowns there was a lot of angst about whether it was going to be allowed and um, the government all got together and they began to talk and make a plan and I remember at that time one of the national newspapers just heading up to Christmas ran with this headline could you stick it up the the next slide for me, please, Nigel. National lockdown could save Christmas. I can't remember exactly what the date was on that particular paper. I'm guessing it was around November time when these questions were beginning to be asked. And these words were a quote from one of the government representatives. And he came along and he said, you know, if we lock down now, there's a chance that 
we might be free to celebrate Christmas the way we want. National lockdown could save Christmas. And I kind of know what this person meant. This person meant, by saying this, they meant that, you know, we've gathered all the brightest and the best minds in the world around the table. We've looked at the data. We've reviewed the science. And we think that if we want to celebrate Christmas freely, then perhaps a national lockdown now could save Christmas. And I kind of know what they meant. But I found this headline fascinating. Because I began to think to myself, wow. Wow. How far away from the story of Christmas have we come to think that we're the ones who can save Christmas? How far away from the story of Jesus, the story of the light of the world shining into the darkness, have we moved to think that we're the ones who can save Christmas? No, 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 friends, we don't save Christmas. Christmas saves us. Christmas saves us. That's the message of Isaiah 9. A people held captive by darkness and distress and misery and despair. On them a light has shone and rescued them from the darkness that surrounded them. A people who were unable to rescue themselves have been rescued by the light of the world. And that's what we celebrate. We celebrate light shining in the darkness and so this christmas time this morning even i would love it if your hearts were stirred with joy and gladness and gratitude and thankfulness to the savior of the world i would love that if you just began to say thank you lord for saving me but even beyond that i think it's good just to remember that God is the kind of God who shines light into darkness. You see, this world's a dark place, right? And sometimes our lives can be very dark places. And sometimes it can feel like we're trapped in the dark. And sometimes it can feel like there's no way out of this darkness. Well, Christmas reminds us that God is the kind of God who shines light into the darkness. See, the only way you can escape darkness is by bringing light, right? And God is the kind of God who brings light into the darkness. And so I hope and pray that this Christmas your heart will be stirred with joy and thankfulness as you remember the story of salvation. And I remember, uh, I, I hope and pray that your heart will be strengthened with hope as you remember that even though life and this world can be dark, that Jesus is the light of the world. And I hope and pray this Christmas that all of our faith can be strengthened in him and our devotion can be stirred towards him. And just as a way to respond to this good news, and that's what this is, this is good news. I think it would be wonderful if we shared communion together this morning. This is what communion remembers. Communion is, 
a way in which we remember that when we couldn't save ourselves, Jesus came and saved us. That's what communion helps us to remember. When we were stuck in darkness, Jesus came and brought light. When we were held captive by death, Jesus came and gave life. And that's what this meal is about. It's about many, many things. But it's about that. It's about God saving us in his grace, in the person of his son. And so I would think that as we finish this morning, that just to partake of communion together will be a wonderful way to do that. So I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to invite, can I invite Llewellyn? Can you pass the bread and the cup round for me? Can you pass it round? Yeah, that would be wonderful. I'll pray and we'll do that. And then Alan will come and lead us in a song. And then we'll spend some time just catching up after the service over a drink. Lord, we give you thanks this morning for this wonderful story, the story of salvation, the story of light shining in darkness, the story of life overcoming death, the story of mercy triumphing over judgment, the story of your love making a way for us to be saved. And Lord, as we come this morning to take the bread, and take of the cup. I want to pray that by your spirit you would manifest your presence to us. And that you would fill us afresh with hope and joy and delight. And that you would remind us that you are the fountain of living water. You're the fountain of living water. You're the one who satisfies our deepest desires. You're the one who can truly give life. And I pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts towards you again this morning. I pray it in and through and for your lovely name. Amen. Amen.